welcome to season six of the Dead Lady Show podcast. Here at the Dead Lady Show, we celebrate women, be they overlooked or iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. We do that through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond, and we bring you the very best of those stories here on the podcast. I'm Susan Stone, and I'm joined by Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Derbyshire. Hi, Katie. Hi, Susan. Season six. Season six. Yes. Very exciting. Who would ever have thought it? Well, you probably. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm still surprised. <laughs> so, Katie, it is nice to be back with you in podcast land after our short break. Yeah. And uh, in this episode, we are going to hear about an author that will be familiar to some of our Patreon friends. Over at patreon.com slash Podcast, we treat our supporters to special Dead Lady book chats and audio features. And Katie, a while ago, you talked about one of our featured ladies' books. I did. I talked about uh, Angela Carter's The Magic Toy Shop, which was a massive, massive life-changing book for me as a teenager, actually, and brought me into the world of Angela Carter's eerie fiction um, uh, in the, the most delightful, innocent way. And it all goes a little bit darker from there, I have to admit. Yeah, beautiful book. Yeah, Angela Carter, she's a, a writer who uh, I don't really know how well known she is, but she should be extremely well known. She really kind of set a new standard for sort of feminist, gothic, creepy, erotic strangeness, I guess you could say. All that and then became sort of in the curriculum for, for British schools, which is sort of amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a while since I was a teenager and uh, she was still alive at the time. So she was very present in in my reading life and, and put out, you know, books as I got older. And uh, But I think maybe I was in a, like a little little bubble. I don't know. Because when she, uh, after she died, there was kind of a renaissance and she was spoken of as a kind of neglected writer. And I was confused because I had no, in no way been neglecting this writer. Um... But yeah, no, very much present and, and acknowledged nowadays in, in the UK, yeah. Well, if you haven't heard of or read Angela Carter, I think anyone listening to The Dead Lady Show will, will love learning about her. And if you do, I think you will really enjoy uh, our talk about Angela Carter because it comes from Leon Craig, who is a British writer living in Berlin. And her debut collection of gothic-tinged short stories called Parallel Hells was published in February uh, 2022. And it's just out in paperback this fall from Scepter Books UK, an imprint of Hachette. And here she is from the stage in Berlin's Akut. Hello and good evening, everyone. Especially hello to the dog, who is very cute. And I'm going to be doing, if I can get the clicker to work, yep, Angela Carter. A free woman in an unfree society will be a monster. Her freedom will be a condition of personal privilege that deprives those on which she exercises it of their own freedom. The most extreme kind of this deprivation is murder. These women murder. This quotation is from Angela Carter's seminal book of nonfiction, The Sadian Woman, which offered a fresh perspective on pornography, female sexuality, and the works of 18th century pornographer, the Marquis de Sade. She wrote it at the height of the feminist sex wars in the 1980s, when feminists were very divided over the ethics of porn, BDSM, and sex work, on, among other topics, with one camp arguing 
more or less that women should reject these things as the violence of the patriarchy and the other camp arguing that it's the individual circumstances under which these acts take place that make them either oppressive or joyful. And into this extremely tense environment, Angela Carter published her re-evaluation of Dessard as not merely an aristocratic fantasist and deviant, but a nihilistic philosopher who'd recognised something really profound about the conditions that women lived under. And how did Angela get to the point where she'd scandalise half of English-speaking feminism and spend the rest of her life receiving letters from men asking to be her slave? <laughs> well, born Angela's Olive Stalker in 1940 in Eastbourne, she spent much of her early life in Yorkshire because her family got evacuated there during the Blitz, and she lived with her grandmother Jane, who she decided that she was going to praise as a witch with second sight. Um, her family returned to Croydon, which was a predominantly working-class area of South London, where she grew up fighting with her controlling, anxious mother, who obsessively pressed food on her and allowed her no privacy. When Angela learnt that she stood a good chance of getting into Oxford University, but her parents would move there with her, <laughs> she flunked her final exams because she was not into it. <laughs> Fortunately for her, her father was a journalist, and when her very disappointing exam results came out, he insisted that she go and find a position on the Croydon Advertiser. Her colleagues described her as demonically inaccurate, <laughs> <laughs> but her style even then was distinctive and amusing, so they gave her a byline instead of making her articles anonymous. And even at this point in her life, some of her interests are already becoming clear. So she said of Marlena Dietrich, she looks as if she ate men whole for breakfast, possibly on toast. And course, serve them right, one thinks. <laughs> Angela was very lacking in self-confidence, and she considered herself fat as a young woman, to the point that when a French sailor on a suburban train who stank of cigarettes tried to shove his hand up her skirt, she described herself as having been pleased by the attention. One of her ways against, of rebelling against her mum was, quite sadly, starving herself, and her poor self-image might explain her unhappy early marriage to Paul Carter, a musician and industrial chemist eight years older than her, who she described as an amiable teddy bear and the first man who would have sexual intercourse with me. <laughs> I know, one doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, they were part of the London 1950s folk music scene, and they attended the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament marches together, and sort of took part in the burgeoning left-wing British scene before the swinging 60s. So she's a good socialist, and she's right in there already. Paul was really prone to dark moods and long silences, and she, poor Angela had to give up her job at the advertiser and move to be a housewife in Bristol with him when he got a job there. And this is actually the Crescent where they lived. Um, boo. She was extremely bored. Um, <laughs> so she found herself really unhappy, and reading was her way out. At uh, this point in the 1960s, the average British housewife spent seven and a half hours a day on housework, and women needed the signature of a male guardian to take out a mortgage. So not many ways out. She started suffering from phantom pregnancies, where she'd get the symptoms of early pregnancy and become terrified that she was going to have Paul's child. Luckily for her, she'd also begun writing fiction. 
including her first published short story, The Man Who Loved a Double Bass, which won the Storyteller magazine competition in 1962. And the folk music that filled her life with Paul inspired her to think a bit more about what writing could be. And she got really critical of the stuffy realism that was very typical in English fiction at the time. So here's another quote from her that I really love. For most of human history, literature, both fiction and poetry, has been narrated, not written, heard, not read. So fairy tales, folk tales, stories from the oral tradition, all of them are the most vital connection we have with the imaginations of ordinary men and women whose labour created our world. And here's her favourite pub. Where <laughs> <laughs> um, the connection between these is a bit deeper than you might think, because this is where she went to like, make friends of her own and get away with Paul and kind of develop an intellectual and social life. So around this period in the early 60s, she started at Bristol University and Paul's main concerns were that she was a bad housekeeper and didn't cook enough for the folk musician friends who were always on their sofa. <laughs> yeah, real, real prize, Paul. <laughs> Luckily for her, this was a period in time where she could actually get quite a generous student grant, so she finally had a bit of money as well. And she could go and explore the hippie paradise that Bristol's becoming in the early 60s. She started her first published novel, Shadow Dance, which is about a psychotic and promiscuous beatnik named Honey Dripper, <laughs> who murders a young woman. And she found a publisher for it not long after her final exams, when she was just 24. Though she did have to ask the man Honey Dripper was loosely based on to sign a letter saying he wouldn't sue her for libel. <laughs> Paul refused to let Angela get a job when she graduated and he got even more withdrawn from her as her life got more exciting. She wrote two more novels in quick succession, The Magic Toy Shop and Several Perceptions, the latter of which was another examination of the hedonism and permissiveness of the 1960s. And Angela did start feeling that everyone else was having more fun than her. So she began an affair with John Osborne, the man Honey Dripper was based on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the name is probably a bit of a prediction. <laughs> he did soon end with things between them, though, because he was the husband of one of her close friends. Oh, no. <laughs> and Angela was still really suffering from feelings of severe inferiority. And there's this amazing thing in this biography where she marches up to the already very renowned novelist A.S. Byatt to tell her the sort of thing you're doing is no good at all <laughs> I mean I guess she always had chutzpah she started in evening classes at the West Midlands College of Art who later actually did an exhibition that was inspired by Angela's work but in her lifetime told her that she was not committed enough to be a full time art student very rude. She also tried to write a script for the film adaptation of The Magic Toy Shop, despite never having written a script before in her life and probably not having read one. <laughs> the exercise was a failure, but she still got paid $3,500 for it, which is equal to about 25,000 euros today. Yeah. She wrote two more novels, Heroes and Villains, which one of which is a post-apocalyptic fantasia of warring tribes and love, which is a violent domestic noir about a love triangle with clear echoes from her own marriage, still dying by inches. When she won the Somerset Moor Award in 1969, one of the conditions was that the big sum of money she got had to be spent on travel. And she and Paul went on a road trip through America, parted happily enough at San Francisco airport, and she promised she'd come back to him in a few months when she got back from Japan. 
but actually fell madly in love with Tokyo instead. <laughs> Tokyo was one of the biggest cities in the planet at this time, and it was like rapidly modernizing after its post-war slump. And Angela, who was traveling alone for the first time ever, decided that she was going to have a bunch of one-night stands and then get into a relationship with Sozo Araki, who was a Japanese man several years younger than her, who was also a passionate reader and wanted to be a writer. On her way back to England to tell Paul she was leaving him, she took off her wedding ring and left it in the ashtray of the smoking lounge. Yeah. Iconic. <laughs> <laughs> the marriage had lasted nine years and her family were furious. Paul was heartbroken and he changed the locks on their flat, so Angela went to stay with her old university friend Carol in Bradford in the north of England and slept with Carol's husband as well. <laughs> she got really mad at the husband for breaking things off with her and really mad at Carol, even though Carol's like, you're an open relationship, I don't care. He's just him, he doesn't like you. <laughs> but... She, she, I mean, it seems to me like at this point she was kind of on a bit of a rampage because all of the energy that had been dampened by Paul was now kind of set loose on the world. <laughs> <laughs> and she fancied herself a femme fatale, so she wrote, I suppose I feel that everything I have is up for sale, my most secret and perverse desires, the things I love, and I am not responsible for the fact that I might betray anybody at any time. <laughs> Getting that post-divorce energy glow. <laughs> <laughs> Angela returned to Japan for a year to be with Sozo, but the relationship didn't really work because she never tried to learn Japanese and he'd stay out all night drinking and playing pachinko, though this did leave her a lot of time to write a short story collection. He still really resented the fact that she earned more money than him and he kept trying to assert himself through being unfaithful to her or like half-hearted attempts to persuade her to commit suicide with him. Yeah. I mean, she was just really irritated by this. And <laughs> she wrote this, letter, this amazing letter to her friend where she talks about him coming home and getting undressed and seeing lipstick on his boxers. And he really wanted her to be angry, but she just laughed in his face. She said, I wait with bated breath for what surprises next week may bring. I shall probably discover residual traces of a Mars bar in his anus. <laughs> She did base the heroine of her next novel, The Infernal Desire Machines of Dr. Hoffman, on him. So she's, she decided to flip the genders. And it's a book that's inspired by Borges, and it's a city that's under siege by a mad professor whose technology allows erotic dreams and fantasies to permeate the waking world and throw it into chaos. And the narrator's tasked with killing Dr. Hoffman and falls in love with his daughter but decides to kill them both so it's kind of a very long breakup letter among other things anyway she went back to england for three months for the publication of love and noticed that he wasn't writing to her as much as she'd hoped she had this horrible arduous journey back to tokyo to resume the relationship with him where she had to travel overland through russia for part of the way and he didn't even bother to turn up to the airport yeah but she stayed on a little bit longer in Tokyo, dating a Korean 19-year-old named Kofansu and working in a hostess bar to write an article about it for a UK magazine. Ko was really devoted to her, but she didn't treat him as an equal, which is something she regretted deeply later in life, especially when she learned he'd have, had a nervous breakdown and he never really recovered from it. She did have a bit of an unfortunate habit of going for younger and younger men. So she wrote around this time... I realise that I still have the task of constructing my personality to cope with and took a bit of a dating break, 
trying to figure out who she was when she wasn't embroiled in a love affair or married to a man who resented her. And instead, she got involved with the women's liberation movement, including the new feminist magazine, Spare Rib. It was really well known for its scathing critiques of British misogyny, and she also started working with Virago Books, which was a new feminist imprint that was founded in 1973 by someone called Carmen Khalil, and it went on to publish quite a lot of her work, including her translations from French into English, which she refused to write the footnotes for because she couldn't be bothered. Um, I hear some chuckling from translators in the audience. <laughs> Anyway, she was not deterred by this, these demands for footnotes, so she moved to Bath and settled down to write The Passion of the New Eve, which is this wonderfully mad novel set in a war-torn America about a young male academic who gets transformed into a woman named Evelyn as a punishment and then gets abducted by a doomsday cult. And <laughs> I know just one thing after another. The Doomsday Cult break into the house of Tristessa, who's a silent movie star based on Creta Carbo, discover that Tristessa has a penis, and then the heroine gets pregnant by her. The terms that Angela uses in the novel are now very updated, outdated, but it's quite noteworthy how sympathetic she is towards both Evelyn and Tristessa, and leads me to hope that if she lived, she might have had like slightly more enlightened views than other writers of her generation. Mm. She was still really like hard up for money, and she took on as much journalism as she could. So she wrote this amazing radio play, Vampirella, which is a feminist retelling of Dracula, and also accidentally got pregnant by one of her neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> and as if agonised over whether to keep the baby or not, decided that she couldn't. And... It was technically legal by this point, but they made it really, really difficult. So you still had to pay through the nose to have a termination. And she wrote to her friend and publisher, there is nothing like this experience for radicalising a woman, which I think is quite striking, given that she was you know, already very much in the women's lib movement. Anyway, she was still very busy as well with the Sadian woman and was worried that she'd bitten off more than she could chew. But she met Mark Pierce, who was a 19-year-old construction worker, <laughs> same pattern here, and he was building an extension to the house opposite hers, and she asked him to come over and help with her broken tap. He just never left. <laughs> Fifteen years her junior, he'd left school without any qualifications, and her friends were quite puzzled by the match, but it actually worked out really well. He was a supportive, loyal, highly competent and creative man himself, and the two stayed together for the rest of her life. One of the things that her biographer suggests is actually that, um, sorry, this is Edmund Gordon, is that a lot of her friends also had a habit of dating younger men because the men who were of their own generation had grown up with these like very 1950s values about what women were supposed to be, which makes it a little bit more explicable, I think. She finished the Sadian Woman with a quote from the anarchist writer Emma Goldman. Oh. oh. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, this is all very intertextual and fun. Um, a small conception of the relation of the sexes will not admit of conqueror and conquered. It knows of but one great thing, to give of oneself boundlessly in order to find oneself richer, deeper, better. And as well as being a coda to her book, this is also, I think, her way of saying that her relationship with Mark was one of equals. And... The calm that settled over her life actually meant that she could be, that she was able to devote way more time to creativity and writing. And 
not long after she wrote this iconic collection called The Bloody Chamber, which is now on the national curriculum in the UK and has all of these amazing lines like, love is not unlike the ministrations of a torturer and the retellings of Bluebeard and Little Red Riding Hood. It's very sexy, very weird, and you can't really ever read a werewolf narrative again without thinking about it. Um, justifiably, her reputation grew and grew, both as a cultural critic and a fiction writer, and she became friends with luminaries that included Salman Rushdie, and she spent a lot of time trying to cheer him up because he was hiding in fear of his life after receiving a fatwa because of the blasphemous elements of his novel, Satanic Verses. And around this time, she also moved back to London with Mark and started teaching at universities across the country. And one of her students was actually the novelist Kazuo Shiguro, who wrote The Remains of the Day. So she was gathering a like, literary coterie among herself, even though she'd initially felt that she was very left out of things earlier in her life. So these are some of her friends. And also Iris Murdoch, who she interviewed, who didn't really know who she was, which she was hopping mad about. <laughs> She wrote a new story collection, Black Venus, whose titular story is about the poet Baudelaire's mistress, Jean Duval, and a big opera fan. She chanced her hand at a libretto of Virginia Woolf's Orlando, though this was never performed in her lifetime. She had really bad luck with scripts. It's like one of the themes of her life, apart from the 19-year-olds. <laughs> Anyway, between numerous writing fellowships in America and Australia, she managed to get two more novels under her belt, Knights of the Circus and Wise Children, which interrogated the gap between the artifice of the stage and reality, pastiching Edwardian musical culture and also reimagining Shakespeare. And she, I think, very positively encouraged Mark to enrol in art school himself to become a ceramicist and kind of have his own creative explorations. And she gave birth to her only son, Alex, at the age of 43, which is, I think, because she, she finally felt like she was ready and could, could have time for both things. And she had the one bit of luck with a script in her life where, along with Neil Jordan, she adapted one of the stories from The Bloody Chamber, The Company of Wolves, into this fantastically surreal film that features Angela Lansbury. And I'm just going to play you a clip from it now. This is where legend ends and survival begins. But the dreams of childhood hold no promise of a happy ending. Because you have. The worst kind of wolves are hairy on the inside. And when they bite you, they drag you with them to hell. Did I scare you? I am sorry. The company of wolves. They are all the company we keep, even in our dreams. I mean, it's so camp. Like, I want to be afraid of it, but it is also quite funny. <laughs> The London underground seemed to have erred more on the side of terror because they banned this poster for being too disturbing. <laughs> um, towards the end of her life, Angela also judged Britain's most prestigious literary prize, which is the Booker, in 1983. And 
It was widely expected that she would then go on to be shortlisted for the prize herself for Wise Children. But as the prize had been given to twice as many men as women for the duration of its existence, the odds weren't really in her favour, and she did actually get snubbed. Her friends and colleagues at Virago were so angry about it that they went on to establish the Women's Prize in protest, which is still running today, and they nearly called it the Angela Carter Prize. In 1990, she was diagnosed with lung cancer, and she died at the age of 51 after it spread to her lymph glands, which meant that she never got the chance to write Adela, her sequel to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, which would have been so good. I really want to know what she would have said about Jane Eyre, but... We ne- well, sadly, we will never know. But she did convince Virago to pay her the advance for it before she died. <laughs> and you know, they, they got their dues as well, because three days after her death, they sold out of all of her books because of the attention. And they still had a collection from her to publish posthumously, which was American Ghosts and Old World Wonders. I think she achieved a huge amount in a comparatively short life. And in terms of how misogynist British society was at this period, I think that's also particularly impressive. In order to avoid ending on too much of a downer, I would like to share this quote from her friend Susanna Clapp, who was also her editor at the London Review of Books. She was bold and brave, and the more brave because she was not fearless. Everyone who saw her in the year before she died came back with different stories. Everybody had a different part bestowed on them. Queenie to the end, and also kind... Angela orchestrated her friends to make a last living story. She never stopped being herself. And I think that's a nice note to end on. And if you were interested, I have relied quite heavily on the invention of Angela Carter, a biography, which has a lot of really amazing details in it, including the botulism incident that propelled her father's career, which I wasn't able to talk about here. But yeah, I I really recommend you read it. Um... The website devoted to her, and I think run by her estate, has some really amazing interviews, and there's also a book of postcards that she sent, um, which Susanna Clapp put together by going through her desk with Angela's um, permission, because Angela had a lot of time to figure out how she wanted to be remembered. And if you're interested in her work, I really recommend starting with the Sadian Woman, Knights of the Circus, or The Bloody Chamber. She definitely deserves to be read and remembered. Thank you, everyone. Leon Craig on Angela Carter. Thanks to our sound tech slash bartender Thomas Beckman and Johannes Braun of Akud for their kind assistance. We'll be back in Akud later this month, actually, with a slightly abbreviated show. I'll be talking about the electronic music pioneer Delia Derbyshire. Sadly, no relationship, <laughs> no relation to me personally. And Florian Dowsens will present the photographer Berenice Abbott. So that's on November 29th. If you're in town, come along and uh, enjoy the fun. Yes, please do. Uh, Both those talks will be in English. And of course, they will both appear on the podcast probably this season or in the next season. Now, if you, like me, are moved to seek out more about Angela Carter after hearing Leon's talk, we will have some links and some pictures in our episode notes. Katie, I could not wait. I hunted down Shadow Dance, Angela Carter's debut. Have you read it? I haven't read it. This is, I haven't, I've read maybe about half of her books and not that one. Tell me about it. It is very creepy and squalid, as we heard, and it's cinematic. It has some incredible language. 
um, the evildoer of the story. So Leon refers to him as Honey Dripper, which was the original name of the character. It was actually changed to Honey Buzzard before publication, which is somehow less seductive and more unpleasant. Um, and the book was published in the U.S. under the name Honey Buzzard originally. So weird. Um, if you're interested in the dark side of the mod and beatnik era, I mean, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, Ooh. it's kind of, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, for you, you can you take went, it home with you. Yeah, if you finished it, I'll uh, take yes. it right home with me. Yeah. Um, I think it would make kind of a great film or a series. It's a little bit One Night in Soho meets Naked by Mike Lee. Okay. Uh, maybe there's a tiny bit of Berlin Alexander plot. So I'm drooling there. now. Stop it. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 kind of horrible and wonderful, but I guess you could say that about a lot of Angela. Yeah, definitely. Work. But that's the the fun part, you know. That's you're like goosebumps and delight at the same time. It's amazing. Yeah. And here, let me grab my copy here. So the book actually says on the cover, as is a pull quote from Salman Rushdie, and it says, "A great writer, a real one-off." Well, it wasn't a one-off, was it? No, and that's what I thought was so amazing about this quote because, um, you know, this is sort of the book that started it all. And uh, if this was one book, you know, it would be quite notable. But to have a career that of twists and turns built mm-hmm. on it is, is really, really quite fascinating. I also have, I had to go out and get this book that Leon... Uh, mentioned this incredibly huge I'm holding in my hands can you hear yeah it's big uh, biography the invention of Angela Carter by uh, Edmund Gordon and he really had access to all kinds of personal correspondence and you know she had sort of started to document her life at the end of her life because she knew you know the end was coming and um, just the material in it, the stories, the anecdotes, as, as Leon says, I mean, there's so many twists and turns from her parents' life, from her own life, from her love life. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to take me a while to get through it, but just dipping in and out of it, I think, will be very enjoyable. And yeah, it's just on the cover as read on BBC Radio 4. I mean, that must have taken quite a while. <laughs> I assume they were extracts, huh? but it's a beautifully uh, designed book as well, very on point for, for Angela, these little scary flower illustrations scary fairy tale yeah yeah perfect if you want to find out more about both angela carter and leon craig you can go to our website deadladyshow.com slash podcast we'll include a link to the white review where you can read a short story from leon online called lick the dust sounds perfect uh selected for the best british short stories 2022 and as always do catch up with us on social media at dead lady show I was going through Leon's website to get ready for our talk today, Katie, and I found all these reviews of the book Parallel Hells, and I thought I would share a few with um, our listeners because it's amazing how many mention Angela Carter. So Mm. this was really like a perfect match for Leon. I mean, I'm sure she knew that. Here's one. It starts with this one from Neil Gaiman. Mm. Leon Craig has set up her writing space at the place where gothic horror meets contemporary fiction, where magic meets despair, and where all the cool queer kids hang out to show off their tattoos before they get swallowed by the night. That's um, a, a slightly naughty one, but I enjoy it. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Neil Gaiman. Okay, so also we have here from the Literary Review, it says... Uh, Craig, a deft hand at this most difficult of forms, the short story, writes crisp prose redolent of Angela Carter's, particularly in its visceral, sometimes horrifying physicality. 
And then this is great from The Big Issue. It says, a glorious collection of short stories that reads as if Edgar Allan Poe and Shirley Jackson had a little queer baby. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't want to be there, would you? Uh, Yeah, that would be a little problematic. Of course, we have a podcast about Shirley Jackson if you want to go listen to more about her. And then here's from the Financial Times, Angela Carter with a LGBTQI plus filter. I'm surprised that they didn't notice Angela Carter's filter of that kind, frankly, but hey, who cares? So all kinds of fun stuff here. I'm going to go read more Leanne Craig. I'm going to go read more Angela Carter. Let's do that. Yeah. If you'd like to read our show, we've got transcripts of this episode and many others available on our website. Thanks in part to our lovely Patreon supporters who help us out over at patreon.com slash dead lady show podcast all one word where we thank them with special book themed audio features including the one about uh, magic toy shop yes yes do go have a lesson thank you katie thanks to florian and thank you to leon craig for the fascinating presentation and thank you to everybody out there listening we'll be back again next month with another fabulous dead lady we will. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Our theme tune is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. See you soon. See you soon. Mm-hmm.